Hello and welcome to episode 77 of Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley. Thank you so much for being here today. Happy New Year to you all. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode. And I have the pleasure today of being joined by Mr. John Roderick. Hi, John. How are you? I'm well, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for coming back to the show. We had you on many, many months ago now, so I appreciate you coming back on. We've got something exciting that I want to talk to you about today. But uh, first off, Mr. Roderick, what do you like to be known for these days? Well, you know, that's an excellent question. I feel like I'm at a kind of a transition in my career um, where I, I haven't released any new music for a while, and I was kind of falling into the habit of being a, a public commentator, a person, you know, uh, partly because uh, I have a podcast and that has given me an outlet for speaking directly to people instead of through the sort of the artifice of song. But I, but I also, I like to write, I like to write prose and I've started, I've started, I had a column for a while. Anyway, uh, just the other day, uh, someone from Esquire magazine contacted me and they wanted me to write an article for them. And then, uh, I wrote an article for the village voice and I've been writing some music criticism for a, a website here in the States called talk house. And I was burbling along, writing these pieces. They, they, they don't take much out of me to do. And then I realized, kind of just in the last day or so, that I was, I was writing this kind of commentary on the world. And what I was formerly known for and what I prefer to do is make primary source material. You know, if you're making a song, if you are writing a story, that is that is source material. It's primary. It is the thing that did not exist before. You're not commenting. Presumably, you're not. Your song isn't commenting on some earlier song, or if it is, it, it's doing it in an inventive way. And it isn't this chattering sort of criticism and culture digestion that is so much of. I guess what, what we call content, internet content, which is just like, oh, this came out and now I'm talking about it and now I'm talking about this other guy that was talking about it. And, you know, there's going to be a great wind that comes through that just blows all that stuff out to sea. And all that's left is, the, is that primary stuff. Like, there, there were probably a million words written about uh, the Beatles' first few records when they came out, and none of that early criticism survives or matters. Nobody reads it, but the records are still there. So what do I... I guess your question is, what do I want to be known as? And I'm... I feel like this year I am retrenching as a as a maker of things, and I don't want to just write articles for Esquire about how the internet is stupid. I want to be a maker of, of like, er, art. Uh, but, the, but the challenge, or, you know, the, the, the onus is on me then to do it, to, to be a maker of things and to have ideas and not be content to to just talk about the culture and be 
and be satisfied that 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 is that, that that's enough to leave behind. So this actually leads perfectly into to what I want to talk to you about today. So, um, you you are uh, your band. You are the singer frontman of the Long Winters, mm-hmm. and you recently. Uh, have had an anniversary of one of your albums um, that you guys released in 2003 called When I Pretend to Fall, which is an incredible album that people should go and check out. One of one of my favorites. I found it in the last maybe 18 months um, mm-hmm. and, and I've enjoyed it immensely. So thank you for creating that. Um, so you've recently had this anniversary and you've been touring the album. We'll talk about that in a bit. But I want to sort of explore how an album is created um, and you know maybe frame some of some of the discussion around this album in particular. So I guess I kind of the first thing I guess is the inception, right? So do you when you're thinking about an album, do you tend to have like do you think of a concept or do you have lots of individual songs that you're thinking of and you decide you want to put them together? Where does that start for you? Well, traditionally, for me, the process of songwriting was, driven by a kind of mania which uh, is a description I guess of a feeling that I could not process my emotional life in a, in, a, in a direct fashion and writing songs was uh, an outlet a kind of um, a venting of those emotional like built up emotional frustrations or or kind of episodes that I needed to process I needed to clear somehow um and I didn't have the language I had a I had a tremendous facility with language but I didn't have emotional language or access to it um my intellectual overseer kept my emotional life kind of in chains. But through songs, I could, I could express these frustrations because the, the music did a lot of the heavy lifting and the lyrics could be opaque. But I could somehow get, I could get through the, the experiences. So when I was young, I was having all these confusing uh, life travails where I'm, I can't seem to make it work with this girl and I can't seem to figure out how to how to keep a job and I don't understand why I'm so underappreciated and all these kind of problems of that characterize your early 20s if you are not one of the fortunate ones who just breeze through life. And songs were this were, were a place I could I could get that stuff out. And so writing songs it wasn't a a process that I sat down and kind of governed. It was a, it was an ungoverned process of like I would come home sometimes. I would throw my, my coat on the floor, and you know I would just be pacing around my apartment. And rather than punch my fist into the wall, I would grab my guitar and I would start strumming it, and and the words would come, and the and us and then I would. I would be engaged in this, like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm writing this song now. You know, I would be so, I would be so, uh, I would have this kind of animal redirection of my, you know, this base energy, like, ah, I'm gonna, I want to kill that person, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna play these chords instead. 
And then I would build up, I would build up this catalog of songs and early on I would have a band. We'd go out and we'd play the songs. I could get up on stage and yell and scream. But when I started making records, it opened up this whole new window of, of uh, opportunity to take a much more active hand in making these songs sound like I wanted them to feel. I wanted them to conjure in other people the feelings that I was struggling with. And I wanted them to be, through the music, be uh, evocative of like common emotions that we all share. So the recording process was this, um, like a, a tremendous opportunity to be in a place of calm and and revisit these emotional songs and try and bring them to life in a way that maybe I wouldn't have thought of initially or maybe I couldn't have I couldn't have pictured some of those other hidden melodies but now I could find them and those melodies had other information that added to the story when it comes to actually sitting down and and putting the pen to paper and, and finalizing these songs or when it comes to the point where you're like, right, I've decided I'm going to do an album and now I need to, to make some more music for it. Do you lock yourself away somewhere? Do you have a specific place that you like to be that, that helps you? Like, is there somewhere in the world that, that is best for you to sit and, and find your inspiration? No, I find that process excruciating. And I will do everything in my power to avoid it. Um, so I will sit down and I'll have my little mug of tea and I'll have my favorite guitar and I'll have my best little amp and I'll have my pencils all neatly sharpened and I will sit down and say, here we go, going to write that song, going to finish that song that needs to get done for the thing. And then I will stare at a spot on the wall for five hours or I will decide that I can't play the guitar until I file my nails and so I'll start filing my nails and then I'll need to take a bath and then you know like I will do anything to avoid the the really really hard work of writing songs it's a terrible if, if the the songwriting process when you're not in the hot fire of inspiration is this brutal, grueling work that I loathe. Um, and so inevitably, at least in every record I've ever made, there comes a time when I'm actually, I arrive in the studio, we are recording all the songs that I know how they go, and, I, and those songs are done, and we get six songs into the album, and we've, we're feeling great, we're hot, we've got six great tunes, and then everybody looks at me and says, so what's the seventh tune? And I've been dreading this moment since I walked in because I'm holding a doctor's bag of fragments. And I say, I don't know what the seventh tune is, but here's a fragment. And I, I have to 
I have to trust the people that I'm with and I have to, I just, because, because we're in the studio and the clock is ticking, traditionally those songs have, have been kind of midwifed in the incredible pressure cooker of being in a room where everyone's counting on you and no one can do anything until you finish the song. But some of my favorite songs have been written that way. Uh, Scared Straight from Pretend to Fall was written, the lyrics were written on the last possible day of the recording session. Like, last day. Everything else is done, and here's this song, and there's still no words for it. And everyone's looking at me through the control room glass, and it's... 9.15 at night and I have to pull my notebooks out and make a song and I did it and that song is one of my favorites and from the subsequent album um, Putting the Days to Bed the song Hindsight was also written on the last day of the studio just the last possible moment so that um, that hot cauldron sometimes produces you know work I'm very proud of but I don't like it I don't want to go there how do you feel when some of your favorite songs are written in that way like you spend hours and hours and hours trying to come up with something and then your maybe some of your favorite work or your best work comes at a moment of like well I have to write something now because we're a song missing is it a good feeling or is it like a is it an annoyance well, it's a tremendous feeling, and at the end of every album, I walk out of the studio feeling um, kind of all this cocksure sense that, that uh, what I need to do is not be so precious, and I should just go immediately back into the studio because I'm really firing on all cylinders right now, and I should just write a record right now I should create, artificially create these deadline type situations where I just have to write. I should try and try and um, like make that process a method and convert it so that I'm in so that I'm in charge of it and start to write that way. It's the Randy Newman method, I guess, where he shows up to work every day at 8 o'clock in the morning and he writes songs until 5 o'clock at night. And he presumably does not belabor the process. So, so I, uh, at, every, at the end of every recording session, I feel like this is the dawn of a new era I'm going to start. I'm going to start working this way instead of, waiting for inspiration to strike. And then I inevitably do not make that change. And partly it may be that I, that I have a, a little confidence, I have that little bit of confidence that, well, when I need it, it will come because it always does. Um, and if you did leave yourself to that situation and it doesn't come, then you've kind of put yourself into, you've forced yourself into a failure position, you know? Well, and that's where I'm at now. I have a I have a, an album that is entirely recorded. The music is entirely recorded. And I 
kind of pushed myself way beyond what I'd ever done before, which is that I went into the studio and made an album entirely of fragments. I did not have a single finished song. And I thought, I'll just put myself in this situation and I will just make 12 songs this way. And I, I could not. Or, or I flew too close to the sun and fell dramatically from the sky. So I have, I have 13 songs completely recorded as, uh, I mean, might as well be mixed uh, instrumentally. And no vocals on a single one of them. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and I have a stack of, of lyrics written, um, three foot, foot high stack of, of kind of lyrics that I've been working on over the course of, of four or five years. But there has never been that come to Jesus moment where someone, someone standing there with a scimitar <laughs> held up over my head with the power to say, I will, you know, I will lop off your head if you don't finish a song today. One song. And the, the, the scale of it was so daunting that I, uh, that I haven't, um, I just have not been able to pick it up. I, I, I fear for you talking about this in public now because people are going to be like, when's the, when's the album? <laughs> when's well, the I album know. And, and, you know, and pe <laughs> the thing is people will very generously offer to be that scimitar. Sure. I will give you a deadline. I mean, I've had a lot of friends say, like, if you don't finish a song by next week, I will X. I will stop being your friend or I will call you every day for a month. Or You know, I've had so many people, well-meaning people, try to force me into a panic posture, but I'm, um, you know, I've I'm I'm 45 years old and I've worked for 25 years to be in a situation to be in a position in life where no one can tell me what to do. Sure. And having achieved that goal, I I thought I had really I had made a, an incredible victory. Um, to finally be like. Uh, beholden to no one and then I realized well that was no advantage to me at all um, no one can tell me what to do and so all of the I mean even if I w were in a studio and the engineer was looking at me through the glass and saying like today's your last day I, I have the power now to say ah, no it's not let's work tomorrow let's work you know let's keep working and no one can tell me no and that isn't that has not been helpful is this stuff that you've been working on a solo thing? Or are you working with a band? No, it was uh, it it was recorded as a Long Winters album w with the Long Winters as the band. Right. It is a fully fleshed out evolution of the Long Winters from the from the record prior, and uh, a hell of a good record. And honestly, if you could take dream balloons and turn them into song lyrics, it would be a fantastic album already. But dream balloons are not song lyrics. And um, as I've said, song lyrics are brutal to make um, if you are at all, if you are trying to make them good. And, 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 and that right there reveals a lot. Like trying to make them good is the problem. I have plenty of song lyrics. I could have put this record out five years ago. Uh, if I 
if I even allowed the lyrics to be at the at the level of proficiency that you might find on a killer's record. But I wasn't willing to do that. I wanted them to be indicative of my uh, voice, you know, what I like about my own voice, what's unique about it. And I have sort of, I've lost that or I've been struggling, struggling to remember what it is, struggling to, to find a thing that satisfies me. I still have loads more uh, that I want to talk to you about. Before we do that, I'd have to take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, and that is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TALIHO12. Still use TALIHO12 today. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of other style options for you to adjust so you can create your own space online. Squarespace takes care of hosting, SEO, and even makes your site automatically look great on any device. It's really easy to use, but if you need any help, they have over 70 employees that are on their customer care team based in New York City. Squarespace truly cares about design and it really shows throughout their whole site from their public website to their beautiful templates and to their back-end system as well. It even shows, of course, in their brand new iOS apps for Squarespace customers. They have Squarespace blog, which lets you easily draft, post, schedule and review your, your, your posts. And you can also monitor and manage comments on each of your posts in your blog too. Squarespace blog is fully integrated with their layout engine page building system which allows you to easily format text or markdown and you can tap and drag images within your post in the apps also being able to modify details post setting sorry detailed post settings on the go of course you can do that and they also have Squarespace metrics which is another app which allows you to monitor website analytics like KPIs and page views unique visitors and they also give you projections and charts for your websites They've also updated their previous app's note and portfolio for iOS 7. As I said earlier, you can try out Squarespace for free, no credit card required. And if you decide to, to purchase and sign up, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. And make sure that you get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code TallyHo12. So thank you to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Command Space. So we've spoken a little bit about um, recording. You know, we've mentioned going into the studio and stuff like that. Um, do you record your music in the same place? Where do, you, where do you have like a specific studio that you like to go to? No, uh, Seattle. During the during the big hot time here twenty years ago, people built a lot of recording studios in the city because there was a. Uh, uh, you know the, the the big grunge era yeah. coincided with the the last dying days of the big money music business, and so you could build a recording studio in Seattle and charge in some cases twelve or fifteen hundred dollars a day to record there because you're making Allison Chains records or uh, Heart records, or, you know people that where the major label has all this cash and nobody's keeping track. So all these incredible studios were built. And then the music industry uh, really changed. The, the dynamic of the business of recording really changed. And so there's a, um, an archipelago of 
really world-class studios here that you can now get pretty cheaply um, in some cases for a small fraction of what they were charging in their in their hot times so we've we've recorded I mean uh, the, the guys in Pearl Jam Stone Gossard built a studio for himself I think with the idea that Pearl Jam would record there called Litho and Pearl Jam went in there and recorded for a couple of days and then never worked there again but the studio is still owned by Stone and used by a lot of local bands. And we recorded Pretend to Fall there. I'm sorry, uh, we recorded Putting the Days to Beard there. Our first two records we made at the little project studio where Nirvana's Bleach was recorded, as well as all the Built to Spill records and the Slater Kinney records and the... I mean, all the early Seattle records, as well as the mid-90s kind of heyday, were all recorded at this place that used to be called Reciprocal, and then was John and Stu's, and then became the Hall of Justice. So it's the same little tiny triangular building, but it's been all these different names. I know this is something that you kind of see in movies and TV, but when you go into somewhere like that, somewhere where, you know, great music was made by amazing bands that, that you respect and, and stuff like that. Do you get that feeling? Like, does it give you an added boost at all, you know, if you're in sort of those walls, as it were? It does. And and I'm fairly dubious about that kind of thing. Sure. You can go into, there are plenty of recording studios where you go in and you're like, ah, this place sucks. <laughs> this is Get me out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, the great music recording studios are also just great places to be. Like the Hall of Justice, John and Stu's reciprocal building, is a drafty, soggy, weirdly shaped, um, moldy, spider-filled little, I mean, shack, basically. Uh, at one point... During the recording, a rat came up through the toilet, like came through the pipes and arrived in the toilet bowl. And the only reason the rat didn't, wasn't like running around the room is that the seat, the lid on the toilet was closed. So we're all in there and all of a sudden there's all this noise coming from the bathroom. It's like, what the hell is going on in there? And we all went into the bathroom and our, there was a rat in the toilet that had come up from below. Um... I mean, this was a terrible, terrible place to be, and yet you wanted to be there. I mean, I, I, I slept there overnight many times just because we were working until the wee hours, and it just, why go home? You know, you just pull a comforter up over yourself on the couch and go to sleep, and you, and you do that even knowing that the couch is a breeding ground of spiders. Um, you would all, you'd all the time be sitting on that couch and look over, and there'd be some giant Pacific Northwest spider the size of a mole crawling along the arm of the couch and you're like that spider lives in this couch and I sleep in this couch this spider lives in me yeah right uh, who knows what that spider's doing in the night he could be crawling in one nostril and out the other and and uh, and yet the the place was amazing you wanted to stay there I remember and, and this is true of litho too the last day of recording you're loading your stuff out and you're just feeling like, I don't want to leave here. I want to 
this is what I want to do every day. I want to be in this room making music, playing guitars. And you, you get a sense of what the Beatles must have felt like in Abbey Road Studio B. Like they lived in there for the last six years of their career because it was just like, why would you? I mean, I'm sure that's an amazing place. And if you could, why wouldn't you stay there? Outside of the band, um, do you have a like a team of people that that you trust to record with, like producers and engineers, or do they change from record to record? Well, I went through a process sort of similar to the one in which I endeavored to never have to answer to anybody. I went through a similar process creatively where it's so frustrating to collaborate with other people that I tried to learn all the aspects of making records so that I would not have to entrust another person. Uh, and I wouldn't have to acquiesce to another person. So uh, the process of making Long Winter's records was this gradual process of me kind of initially trying to be the creative guide, creative force of the record, but as time went on also trying to be the technical force as well, trying to figure out the business of recording and and have more and more input into that side of it. And of course, I'm not an engineer. And I wanted to learn that stuff because I wanted to be able to get my point across without having to sit there and say to somebody like, I want the guitars to sound more yellow, man. Mm. And then count on some guy, understand what you mean and be like, you mean like this? No, man, more yellow. You, you went green. Yeah, why are you making it sound purple, man? It's, <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Like, I, I hated that. Uh, and so I, I wanted to learn, like, how, what, what am I talking about, first of all? And then how do you turn the knob yourself or, or ask the guy, like, instead of saying, make it more yellow, say like, can you, can you notch the 4K a little bit or whatever it is that people say. And in learning that, you know, I learned what my limitations were. And I worked with a lot of different people. I guess I came out the other side feeling like uh, uh, collaboration is is necessary and it's crucial and it is frustrating. It is in some ways the worst, but that's how you, that's how you make a thing that's, that's bigger than you. You know, mm. I could, I could record myself, but to make a thing that really transcends my limitations, it requires that other people, you know, also be not just working on it, but invested in it. <sighs> how long are you in the studio for in total like for for a typical session of recording an album start to finish is it days weeks months i mean i, I had no idea well this is a little bit of the you get what you pay for question right. too which is um especially when i was first starting out studios were still very expensive and engineers were expensive and i mean they still are even today, but they, they especially were then, and I was significantly poorer than I am now. And so there's all this kind of underground economy that goes along with 
making records, engineers and producers and studio owners have a lot of flexibility in what they charge because if the guys from Stained or uh, Stone Temple Pilots come, you know, traipsing in with a team of accountants trailing behind them, you're going to charge them $2,000 a day because they still don't know how much, they, they don't know what money is, you know, or they don't know what it's worth. And $2,000 a day sends a message back to Hollywood that this is a really important record and this is a really top-notch studio. Like, people are signing checks for ridiculous amounts of money because Hollywood is morally bankrupt. So if you own a studio, if you are a producer, you it's kind of worked into the fabric of the business that you are exploiting those people. And this is, you know, Steve Albini still makes a name for himself with a kind of ethical stance that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter whether you are a super rich rock star or a young guy just coming up, Steve Albini is going to charge you the same rate because he is a working man. But that, that pose belongs to Steve Albini and everybody else is, you know, is, a, is trying to milk the big shots so that then they can provide the little guys with a really discounted rate. And you see this all the time. You're, you're, you're just starting out the producer likes you. He wants to work with you. His normal rate is $700 a day. But for you, this one time, he's going to make an exception. and He's going to charge you X, whether it's $300 a day, whether it's no money up front, but he owns a portion of the album, whether it's you know a combination of this, uh, like a flat fee of $5,000 plus two percentage points of your royalties. You know, the, this is the, this is 80% of being an independent musician is navigating these kinds of little deals that are worked into the fabric, worked into a lot of the fabric of being a musician in ways that you wouldn't know from the outside. Like there's a guy here in Seattle who owns a, uh, recording studio, it's a, or his his parents built it, and he is a he's the owner of the studio, and a, a little band called the Lumineers were looking for a place to record, and he offered to record them at no charge, but he was going to have a percentage of the back end, and that deal ended up being enormously profitable for him, and it more than made up for the 25 times he's done that same deal with a band that made nothing. But you can't know that. You, you, you know, you're not going to record the Lumineers. Not every guy gets stumbles on a cash cow like that. So for me, starting out, I was offered these kinds of opportunities, and I didn't want to give a percentage of my music to anybody. But I also wanted to record cheaply. And so what ended up happening is, and this is, a, this is another thing that's fairly common, you get offered the dribs and drabs. The guy says, well, I can only record you, you know, like I've got a 10-day session with somebody, but then I've got two days off, and I can record you on those two days. Or I can only record you after 11 p.m., 
because I'm doing this, I'm doing these TV commercials during the day. You know, you, you get, you do a patchwork quilt of recording. So the first Long Winter's record, we started in, Dece- we started recording it in December of 2001 and we worked on it in this piecemeal fashion until, what, what, probably May of 2002. Almost never, a- you know, never had five days conti- contiguous. Right. So how much studio time is that? Well, I wish I knew. <laughs> I would, I, you know, if I could go back in time and keep a meticulous diary of the time we spent in the studio, I would. And I, I, I can't believe I didn't. Um, because in the intervening 10 years, it's all faded into this blur of like, well, we were in the studio a lot, but we also, I mean, I traveled a lot during that time. We went to South by Southwest. We were doing a lot of stuff. And, um, well, you know, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I got the dates completely wrong. We started recording that record in 2000, December of 2000, oh. and it was finished in May of 2001. I was a year wow. off. So, honestly, I have no idea. It seems like you're in the studio constantly, but, but you're not. And, and there's, there are advantages to that. You, 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 you record something, and then you have three or four days to think about it um, before you get into the studio again. And the alternative to that is you book three weeks solid, and you go in and you record and mix your record in ten days, two weeks, and that requires that you have all your songs. Everybody knows how to play them. You go in and you bang them out. You get a live sound. You get a, you know, you get a real kind of natural sound to the band. And that is, for a lot of people, the preferred method. I mean, if the punk rock method is you record and mix your record in three days. But for the Long Winter's records, they were all these prolonged kind of ethereal months and months of going in for three days, then disappearing, then kind of coming back for a few days, working at night and building a record out of all these different experiences. Once an album is recorded, it's mixed, everyone's happy with it, you're going to release it. How does promotion for a record work? Are those is that sort of stuff arranged by your label? Do you do any of it yourself? Like, how does that work for you? Well, ten years ago, um, it was a, it was a, first of all a mysterious world that I had, that I had no understanding of, and it was almost completely deferred to the label. And it was the justification for the label. It's why the label exists. It's not just that they are manufacturing your record and fulfilling orders for it, but they are contracting with the publicists, talking to radio program directors, talking to magazine editorial people. There, there used to be both a, a, a... a, a, a tremendous like diversity of ways you would try and promote your album, but also it was a closed system. There wasn't 
it's not like a band was going to go take an ad out in the back of Rolling Stone magazine. You were dependent on this whole architecture, this cultural architecture of magazine writers, weekly newspaper writers, daily newspaper writers, college radio, commercial radio, public radio. And if your record got into the stream and the right person liked it and talked about it, then you'd start to see more and more of the right people talking about it. And pretty soon you're creating a storm of interest that started with one or two people deciding that this record was something that really mattered. And if you, if you couldn't get those people to take an interest in your record, because of course everybody in, in the world knows who those few people are and they're inundating them with albums. If you couldn't get that person to take the time or, to, or if they just didn't like it, then you're struggling, you're kind of grasping at every opportunity to get someone further down the food chain to take an interest in this album. And, and then you're coveting these college radio program directors in medium-sized markets like Nashville and Atlanta and St. Louis where, oh, you know, the, the program director at the radio station in St. Louis loves the record and he's playing it every day. And so all of a sudden you're on tour and you go to St. Louis and your show is sold out in St. Louis. You can't get arrested in Atlanta, but in St. Louis, you are the big deal right now. And so you're, you're counting on all these people, and, and especially 10 years ago when the idea was that as an artist, you were supposed to cultivate a kind of air of mystery that would make you fascinating to college radio program directors so that you were, you know, a little bit elegantly wasted and a little, you know, you were articulate, but in a kind of dumb sounding way that was cool. And, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to be authentic and at the same time put your best, the best, most rock and roll version of yourself out there as a lure to get people as they're looking at this stack of 50 records on their desk to get them to put your record on and give it a chance. Well, five years ago, all of a sudden the conventional wisdom started to change and it seemed like, Oh no, that we don't have to do any of that anymore. You just put it on the internet and everybody listens to it and the crowd decides <laughs> And you don't have to do any of that bullshit anymore. And you can just tweet about your record and everybody's going to listen to it and love it. And for a brief moment there, when Twitter was, when the internet was still comprised mostly of all the right people, you know, like the early days of music on the internet, it was just the cool kids that were on there. So yeah, clap your hands, say yeah, I could put out a record on MySpace and the cool kids would all get it. 
but of course that window was was short lived and we're back now to a world where everybody's on the internet every single person in the world and nobody cares nobody's list nobody's going nobody's following your tweet link to your record anymore except for your fans people that already like you but you know you're not I mean, my, my Twitter feed is 85% links to people's Kickstarters and YouTube videos. I would do nothing else, and I only follow people I know. I mean, imagine following your favorite bands or whatever. It would just be, be never-ending, and everybody's trying to promote themselves the same way. And the problem is now if you hire a publicist, what are they doing? They're just tweeting about it too. Because the magazines are gone and the record stores are gone. And so, I mean, it's anybody's guess now how you promote a record. So are we back to just the absolute nobody really knows as it was 10 years ago? It's like it's kind of gone full circle. Like there is no way of knowing what to do. You just do all of these like disparate things. Yeah, the problem is, and I mean, and I hate to sound curmudgeonly, uh, although it's inevitable, I can't help but sound curmudgeonly, the very tone of my voice is curmudgeonly. I could be, I could be reading children's poems and it would still sound like I was angry. <laughs> but, I mean, I think what is inevitable is that the, the mean quality of everything is declining. In the early 70s, it was very expensive to make a record and you had to be really good at it to even get into the studio to give it a shot. And there were, and the record companies were very, very selective and the music that made it all the way out to the marketplace was astonishingly good. When you think about the music that came out between 1962 and 1972, what an astonishing quantity of music in every genre. I mean, quality of music. Like, basically, 10 different genres of music were invented and perfected. And we live now in a world where there are more records probably coming out this week than came out in the entire year of 1967 and all of that quantity has not produced you know uh, probably a single record that is as good as the worst record that came out in 1967 i mean everything is easier to make and so more people are making it the standard is so much lower for what is you know for what you need and it's just it's a it, it is a, it's a confusing din it, it, we are not back to where we were we are somewhere down the road where where we are we are increasingly satisfied as a culture we are satisfied with worse because there's so much more of everything so, so like, we don't yeah. we don't have we don't have to invest ourselves. I mean when when 
a Marvin Gaye record came out 40 years ago, presumably you went and spent your record-buying allowance on it, and you brought it home and you listened to it exclusively for two weeks because it was a, it was an investment, but it was also like, this is it. Like, you're going to listen to this, and you've got an AM radio, and that and you're reading the newspaper or whatever. But now we're just clicking through songs like, how does this one sound? Oh, that's good. How does this one sound? Good. Pretty good. This one's good. You know, I mean, we're just, we're flipping through index cards. When it gets to the moment where you're um, getting ready to release an album or just music to the world, you know, just a, a single song or a track, what sort of emotions do you go through? Is it, like, are you excited? Are you scared? Like, where? how does that sit with you? Well, you know, right before a thing comes out, it's all potential energy. There's, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to convert it into kinetic energy. And so there is, you're living in a state of pure excitement because before the record comes out, it is still absolutely possible that two weeks from now your record will have been widely universally embraced and you will you know you 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 can conceive of a moment in your very near future where you will be lauded for your work and that is that is as seductive as anything in the world the feeling of having bought a lottery ticket and they are drawing the numbers and the first four line up with the first four on your ticket. Like the, to have an album where you're listening to it and you know no one else has heard it yet and you feel like you have accomplished what you set out to accomplish. And so if there is any justice in the world and if people have any taste, they will recognize that you have made the thing you were trying to make and in trying to make it you can you cannot but have faith in it that it will reach the people it's meant to reach which you hope is everybody and so this this you know this power of the moment right before it comes out the day the record comes out it's so um it's so extraordinary and it almost can't fail but then be a huge disappointment no matter what happens um, because it's so rare that anything meets the world with that kind of praise. When you write your music, um, do you think of how it's going to sound when it's played live? Do you ever make considerations for that? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I came up in Alaska in the 80s and we were listening to a lot of British heavy metal in the early 80s. But also a lot of American sort of southern fried rock. And a lot of that southern rock starting kind of with Credence and moving through Leonard Skinner and into Little Feet and 
and points beyond. A lot of that Southern Fried Rock had had a lot of kind of weird chicken picking funk influences in it. And so you put metal, you put the first wave of British heavy metal, and you mix it in a big kettle with a bunch of chicken fried American 70s rock. And a lot of terrible things can come out of that pot. Funk metal being one of them. Um, like kind of lame white funk of every sort. And playing a funky guitar is very seductive. You know, if you are a guy who's, if you're a 16-year-old in Alaska and somebody teaches you how to go, you're like, wow, that's really powerful. That makes me, that makes me want to groove. And you're a you're a kid, and you don't. Um, you you're a product of the taste of your friends, and a product of the taste of your time. Um, and so I came to Seattle in the height of the uh, in the height of a scene that was coming from a very different place. They were listening to the first wave of British heavy metal, and they were listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival, but they were not listening to Little Feet. And that crucial substitution of the clash for Little Feet um, changed that funky backbeat into a kind of ska-like skank beat and then ultimately, even the, even the ska beat was taken out, and it was replaced with just a, just a four-on-the-floor punk rock downbeat. And when I was 14, 15 years old, that was, that was one of 10,000 different sounds that I was exposed to. Um. And I held it in kind of equal esteem. You're like, oh, four on the floor downbeat or reggae upbeat or, or you know, chicken fried white soul. They all were just equally interesting. And in a way, like well, my favorite bands used all those sounds. But as the 90s sound morphed into indie rock, you found very very little funk remained indie rock is as unfunky a genre as a thing can possibly be and most of that music is made very very four four on the floor chunk sort of downbeat and so as I, was, as I was writing songs in the late 90s, I still had a lot of this kind of swingy wrist picking. And it was greeted with a lot of incomprehension 
when I would play with bands that were kind of a generation younger than me. Like they just didn't. They were like, is that Jane's Addiction? What is that? And I had to, I mean, it wasn't that I had to, but over time trying to learn the new language, the language of the people that I was in a community with, the people I was trying to reach, my taste evolved in such a way that I, I, spent, I spent about 10 years I would write a song that was like, and then I would say, okay, that is the bare naked ladies version of this song. Now straighten it out. And I would take those same chords and the same structure and I would go ding, 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 ding. And it was a, it was a discipline I was trying to practice. But recently, the last handful of years, I've just decided uh, to quit fighting it and and quit trying to quit quit putting my um, putting the the music critic before the guitar player, and I've sort of banished that music critic to a to a windowless room and you know I've found that a little bit of a little bit of swing goes a long way frankly I mean I, I still I still do try to bleed a lot of that that funk out because it's because primarily it's it's too busy it's just too much ticket to China Chinese chicken it's, you know, you don't need it. But I don't hate myself for it, I guess is what I'm saying anymore. So we're at a new year and you've been doing some new stuff in regards to you've been playing some shows again um, with the long winters. What what does 2014 hold for you? Like what what are you working on? What are you looking forward to? Well, it's a it's a really good question and I feel very much at a turning point. I guess because the last few years I have increasingly made a living and made a name for myself in the world as somebody, as a cultural commentator and as a uh, man about town and a kind of rock on tour, freelance, minister without portfolio. And just recently, I've realized that that is not the that the the the, the, the center can't hold um, all of those side activities that toastmaster kind of stuff is not a career for me. It is part of the part of the fun. Certainly, it, it's effortless work to get up and say. I listened to this record and I thought it was lame. Meh. And I wrote 1,500 words about it because writing is something I taught myself to do. But that's not a job for me. So to get back on the horse and start making real stuff again um, is going to be 
it's going to be a, a process of relearning now in middle age, relearning what I do. I can't just slouch into it. I have to go back to school and I have to learn how to make music again. I'm, I'm glad that we're talking on January 2nd because it's, the whole year still stretches out before us. A year from now, this it, it, we may look back on this and be like, wow, yeah, he really did get up and relearn how to do it, and he made a bunch <laughs> of stuff this year. We have to wait and see, aren't we? Yeah, I hope. So where, John, where are, where are places where people can go to find the stuff that you're currently working on? And to keep <coughs> up with you for the things that you're going to be working on. Where are good places for that? Well, so I do do a podcast that I am very proud of. It is, it is primary source material, mm -hmm. uh, but of a different kind. I think that this, the podcast art form is a great one. And the people who are, it still is only the cool kids listening to podcasts. It is still kind of the, the special place in the world. Um, so my podcast is called Roderick on the Line. Um, but as for the rest of the stuff, I am I'm sort of launching very soon a new website that's just johnroderick.com that's going to have everything on it. It's going to have the songs I'm working on now. It's going to have the shows that I'm doing in a variety of formats. It's going to have the you know music across the whole spectrum of of what i'm trying to make and and new music all the time so hopefully that will be launched in the next month and i will be doing a series of new kind of cabaret shows here in seattle and down in san francisco uh all all with ultimately a goal of coming back to coming back to the world uh, with with new music to share with everybody and come over to England and and get back uh, in the saddle I think that's probably what everybody listening wants you to do so great oh there are some <laughs> people listening who are like ah oh, this guy they're not listening anymore you sound so mad that <laughs> they stopped when I introduced you <laughs> John no what about all those people that like to listen to podcasts just because they they're they need some they need a repository for their hate yeah, I mean, that, I, I'm quite lucky. People tend not to 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 hate at me publicly. Um, maybe maybe oh. they just keep it to themselves. Maybe it's oh, you're very nice. It's part of the it's part of the good thing. You're right. I mean, but that's what I mean. I I feel like the audience for podcasts is a self selecting group where the ninnies just wander off. You know, like they are yeah. not no no dinglings are forcing themselves to listen to podcasts it's it's just people with long long attention spans our people exactly our people john it's always a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for for joining me today mike it was my pleasure thank you for your your uh, your great questions and your your uh, yeah your it was the perfect kind of inquisition thank you and 
you listeners out there, thank you for listening. Um, and if you want to find the links to today, to some of the stuff that we've spoken about today, go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 77, and you will find them all there. If you want to catch up with me online, the best place to do that is via Twitter. And I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, if you'd like to do that. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space, and I'll be back next week. Thanks again to John, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.